This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review the soundtrack to singles. I'm the graphic designer here, for God's sake. If anybody ever discovered by the love bone because of the soundtrack, then that makes this soundtrack 100% worth it. You know, this is some of my favorite songs of all these bands. It's, it's a part where it's like, do, 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 do. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, this is episode 122 of our third season, and we are tackling our very first, well, two firsts, Jay. It's our first album selected by a poll. Secondly, it's our first... somebody from Poland? Yes. Lech Walesa, the... Uh, no. My people. Uh, Facebook Facebook poll, Jay. It's a Facebook oh, oh, poll. Oh. And we're doing our first soundtrack. So last year we did a compilation. Mm-hmm. And it's actually going to tie into this, surprisingly enough. Uh, and then this year we are, uh, we're tackling our first soundtrack. Hopefully the first of a few. Uh, we've had a, a great deal of feedback on doing some soundtracks from the 90s. And I think that's fairly appropriate. There was a lot of great music produced for soundtracks in the 90s and i think this one is a great kickoff of course i'm speaking of the single soundtrack it's a little more mainstream that we probably would have gone but we put it up for a poll vote and that's where uh we ended up picking this album so jay of course i I know you're familiar with both the movie and the soundtrack correct yes sir okay so I'm going to drop some knowledge on you. We don't have a history of the band, so we have a history of the movie or history of the soundtrack. I'm not sure which way to go with that. But basically, so the movie Singles was released uh, September 18th, 1992, filmed in Seattle, Washington, directed by Cameron Crowe, starring uh, Bridget Fonda, Kirk Sedgwick, Campbell Scott, and Matt Dillon, amongst uh, some others, including some cameos by people like Eddie Vedder, uh, Jeff Ament, um, some other Seattle musicians. The soundtrack went on, went platinum, and it went into the uh, it was a top ten album. Now, oddly enough, I consider this to be a pretty damn fine album, but this only has a six point five out of ten rating on IMDb, which is like what? a D. Yeah. Well, IMDb, that's a weird audience. Right, because yeah. we're talking about a movie audience, not a music audience. True, but I, I'm surprised that the movie has a rating of 6.5. I, oh, I would have thought it would The movie does or the soundtrack does? The, the movie. Oh, okay. Sorry, the, I thought you meant the soundtrack. No, it's... it's in, I mean, for... There aren't a lot of Cameron Crowe movies that don't have good ratings. I think Elizabethtown is probably maybe the lowest rated Cameron Crowe movie, or maybe Vanilla Sky, I'm not sure. But regardless, I was surprised at that rating. I thought, I thought yeah. it was a solid between 7 and 8, but what do I know? We got some Facebook feedback. Uh, a couple of people chimed in. Uh, I think Eric J. Peterson, he gave us some, some words that we can build on. He said, Singles captured an era and so did the soundtrack. It is easy to talk about the big name acts, but for me, the real gem is the Mother Love Bone track with its haunting opening and anthemic feel. I'm also saddened that Seasons might be the only solo Chris Cornell track worth listening to. I have a vivid memory of buying the soundtrack. It had been placed on the shelf at the local record shop for sale the next day, and my friends and I tried to buy copies, 
but we had to come back the next day. And then uh, Austin J. Hall chimed in. Though many of the bands in this compilation turned out to be public nuisances later in the decade, I don't know that's debatable, but I'll always have fond memories of the single soundtrack as it represents a time when the artists and sounds documented were still fresh and vital. Before they became cynical, bored, overexposed, or self-indulgent. I still think it features some of the strongest songs from Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, for instance, ever wrote before. Never cared for the heart and Jimi Hendrix inclusions, though the single soundtrack was actually a really cogent and concise slice of where rock music was in 9192 and holds up as both a nostalgic indulgence for those who lived through it and as a collection of really good representative songs from a specific time, place, and mood. Jay, we got some interesting feedback there. I want to point mm-hmm. out, you know, for, for the people listening, so this movie was released in September of 92. That means that the music for this was probably picked in either late 91 or early 92 because it takes time to obviously edit the film, put it together, you know, plan the release date. I'm sure they weren't working on this in August, getting it all together. This 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 goes filming of the movie takes months, and then editing it and all that sort of thing. So, really, when we're talking about when this music was relevant, you're you're talking about Cameron Crow putting on bands like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, some of them before they were really even well known. I'd say mainstream. So, how do you want to do this? Do you want to go track by track and sort of spend a minute or two on each song, or do you want to pick and choose? What you want to talk about? We can let's pick and choose. Okay. I mean, because I'll say that um, you know the point about this being some of the best material that any of these bands have did is really what came to my mind when I reviewed this record. You know, listening to it now, I can say, if, you know, pretty with the exception of maybe one or two. You know, this is my favorite some of my favorite songs of any of these of all these bands mm-hmm. um, so if you, you want to start at the top would you know if i had to pick a favorite alice in chain song it's probably that you know i think it's the most nuanced i think it shows it really does a good job of showing all the members of the band and what they can bring even the bass which sometimes in that band is completely lost but the bass line in that song is, is excellent and the drums are excellent so you know that's probably my favorite Alice in Chains song. How about you? actually agree that is the song i remember the video and i remember thinking how incredibly cool that band was and to this day that drum track on that song i still think of it as how cool it is it's sean kinney's playing um i still reference and i think i even referenced this when we were in a band together the drum fills that he does at the end of that song Mm -hmm. um he does a couple and then he rolls into this like 
it's it's a part where it's like do 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 and i think i've pretty much you know in every song ever tried to write tried to incorporate that drum fill uh because it just sounds so it's cool it's just a cool drum fill i don't know how else to describe it but yeah well it's 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 not easy to uh, write a song where the drum part you know becomes recognizable in such a signature of the song and this is one of those cases where that happens so it's nice because it allows like you said it allows all the band members to shine and in the case with you know this would end up being i think the key track on dirt maybe i don't know down in a hole or rooster might be for some people but when they ended up making the next record which would be the self-titled album the nuance that wood has disappeared you don't get that yep. with like songs like grind or again or any of those no. types of tracks no. so there's you know they they pushed it so far into the heaviness that it, it sort of lost the the cool um restraint that a lot of the the verses have in this song where it explodes in the choruses which you know became sort of cliche but works perfectly and it's a great opening track on this record so what do you think about the pearl jam songs on this record you know it's funny um they're probably two of my favorite pearl jam songs specifically state of love and trust always really like that song breathe is fine it's not i i mean in retrospect it's it sounds like from what i read it was a demo that was state of love and trust breathe even flow and dirty frank were like the original couple of songs that the band demoed really yeah huh and breathe was a stone gossard riff that he had had around for a couple years and then and then eddie fetter wrote uh lyrics over top state of love and trust has always been one of my favorite pearl jam songs so they just it has an energy to it that uh yeah. they would start to lose and it's interesting because this was released right in between 10 and verses 10 came out in 91 verses came out in 93 so yeah. it was sort of uh you know pearl the, the first 10 album i think shows i think we've discussed this before has a bit more of a classic rock feel in retrospect, mm-hmm. whereas Versus definitely shows them in getting influenced by bands like Fugazi and and some of the, I guess you'd say, more indie rock elements of the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And these songs are just sound like straight up rock songs. Yeah. Uh, with a little, you know, Stay Love and Trust might have a little bit of a, I don't know, a punkish feel to it. But I, I think it's I think it's one of their best songs. So what are, I know you're not the hugest Pearl Jam fan, so. What were your take on those songs? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, if I'm going to listen to Pearl Jam, this is the stuff that I want to hear. It captures, to me, it was interesting to hear that these were demos on the original record because I didn't know that. I always thought they sounded like transitional songs from 10 to verses. So they, you know, especially Stay Love and Trust where it's got more of a chord-based riff as opposed to sort of a, you know, a lead kind of um, melodic line like breathe and scream that 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 has a a more 10 style guitar riff to it um with these intertwined you know sort of lines and runs where state of love and troughs is really about you know three chord riff and then there's some but they has some cool uh like in the verse like the what the guitars are doing in the verse where they sort of you know they do the voicings of the vocal you know uh, against it and they, and, and they kind of play off of each other and there's a great energy to it and it's a beat and 
you know, it just, it, it always, that song has probably been my favorite Pearl Jam song because it, and in hindsight, it, it's because it really captures that early period, but also um, brings a little bit more energy than, than maybe what, what most of the material on 10 has. Um, one of the things about Breathe that I really hate listening to it now is the, uh, you know, it does the thing where I, I, lo- I love the riff in that song and I love the guitar mm-hmm. interplay. But when it gets to the verse, the guitar's cut out and it's just all bass. And the bass playing is so annoying. It's like <laughs> super busy. And um, I don't know. It's just like he's playing a ton of little like runs and notes and like har- harmonics. And there's just way too much going on. And the, and the bass tone is like kind of tinny. And it's one of those things where this might be a good segue into Mother Love Bone where obviously this is Jeff Ament, so he's playing bass on, on all three of these songs. And in, in Mother Love Bone, he kind of does a similar style. You know, the bass playing in, that, in the Crown of Thorns is somewhat similar, where he's filling a lot of space with extra notes and runs and things, but he just tones it down enough to where it's cool and it's more complimenting the song. And it sounds like in, the, in Breathe, it's just, it's just too much. It kind of drives me crazy. I agree, I agree with you. And it's I think it's really cool that Cameron Crowe decided to include Mother Love Bone because they were the, the forgotten band, which we've covered previously, yeah. uh, sort of as an influencer to so many bands and, and, you know, producing, obviously, members that went on to play with important bands. But, you know, if anybody ever discovered Mother Love Bone because of the soundtrack, then that makes this soundtrack 100% worth it because yeah. they never would have discovered them otherwise. And that... Now this is another example. This is an example. About half the songs in this album, on this soundtrack, are from previous releases, and then half of them are. And this is an example of where uh, Chloe Dancer, Crown of Thorns, was on the EP Shine that came out in 1989 for Mother Love Bone. I did mention Mud Honey by accident because I thought you said Mud Honey. I <laughs> I wanted to mention that song because, uh, which is overblown. It, the lyric and part of the song is he goes, everybody loves us, everybody loves our town, which is, I believe, where Mark Yarm got the title for his book, Everybody Loves Our Town, in Oral mm-hmm. History of Grunge, um, which we talk, who we talked to last year about his book, and we did the uh, compilation with him. And I've sort of been hit and miss on Mud Honey. Sometimes I, I really like what they're doing, and then sometimes it just falls apart for me. Yeah. Um, this song, this is an example of a song that works for me. So 
obviously with the guys from Pearl Jam, the guys from Mud Honey, going back to Green River um, and Malfunction and all those early, early bands um, sort of represent the original, I guess you'd say, grunge Seattle scene. So it's cool that they got in included. They were sort of in between records on this one. 91 was Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge, and then 92, uh, right after, basically like the month after this uh, soundtrack came out, Piece of Cake came out. And for me, a lot of the it, a lot of the later Mud Honey albums are what worked best. Obviously, I liked the first Mud Honey album, but like Tomorrow Hits Today and and some of the stuff from the two thousands uh, were some of the albums that worked better that, than Piece of Cake, which I didn't really care for, or um, uh, My Brother the Cow, which were like their mid early mid nineties albums. So this so, this well, song is actually used in the movie, right? It's like under the credits, maybe, or the intro. I think. The, the beginning of the movie maybe uses it. I have to go back, but I think you're correct. I was trying to, as I revisited the soundtrack, trying to figure out, remember which of these songs is actually used in the movie. I want to say this one was. I think Chloe Dancer is maybe used for a piece, but a lot of them aren't. Like I don't think Wood ever appears in the movie. Well, yeah, because they Elson Chains plays live in the movie at the bar. But they're not playing Wood. They're playing something else. No, I think you're right. And uh, Soundgarden is in the movie, obviously, but I don't know that they're playing Birth Ritual. I don't remember what they're playing in the movie. I think they but are. That's are they? Yeah, I think they that's are. That's to my point about the you know being the best of what a lot of these bands do. I mean, that's an awesome Soundgarden song. You know, oh great yes, riff, amazing vocal. You know, his vocals all over the place on that on that song. He goes from one extreme to the other. Um, you know, it's just. Classic Soundgarden. transition to the Chris Grinnell pair those two up I, I agree with the point of that's probably as good as he's ever been solo you know it's very like kind of a, a dark almost blues tinged uh, kind of thing that I think he does really well you know if he's going to play acoustic by himself that's the way to do it and um, yeah I agree that it's probably the best thing he ever did on his own that's for sure it's definitely got a cool feel that it's got this like open tuned acoustic guitar. Like I think there's two guitars going on and it sounds completely different than anything Soundgarden was doing in 91, 92. I mean, this is between bad motor finger and super unknown and there's nothing. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't put out a solo album until 1999. So this is, this is a completely different turn for him and it's, it is really cool and it's way better than anything he's ever done solo. The chorus riff, I could kind of hear something that would be on, um, you know, if you played on electric guitars, that would be on Super Un- or uh, what's the one with Spoon Man? Super Unknown. Super Unknown, or maybe even when he started more takeover songwriting and uh, Down on the Upside. Down on the Upside, yeah. Um, that that album as well. Like his take on you know a heavy riff is. If you listen to the chorus of that song, I could hear that 
you know, sort of the formings of, of that in, in that, uh, in that, that riff. The other Seattle band that's on here is, uh, Screaming Trees. Mm. Nearly lost Damn. you. Best Screaming Trees song. And the best Screaming Trees song. It is. <laughs> In terms of a single, I mean, you might somebody might make an argument that there's some album track that they really love, but in terms of yeah. the, the the one that works the best in a, in a single format, that's definitely the best Screaming Tree song. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely. the album Sweet Oblivion was released the exact same month as this uh, soundtrack. It worked out with a lot of these bands were releasing things either the year of or the year after that coincided with this. It made it a little confusing revisiting this because I, I'm so familiar with a lot of these songs and a lot of them, I'm, you know, I couldn't I couldn't figure out if it was because of the soundtrack or because of the they were released on their own record and it just like this is one example of like, okay, well obviously I'm I know this song you know really well is it because of the soundtrack or was it later when it was released as a single or what. Right. I couldn't piece together like when I had heard the song and if it, uh, I, I thought most of these, as I went through them, had been released on, on records somewhere, one way or another. So it was just a little, it's a little, it, it's more of almost like a compilation. <laughs> I it mean, is. I know it's, a, it's around a movie, but it's really like, you can almost think of it more of as, as a compilation of like 1992 Seattle combined with, um, well, there are some oddballs. Yeah, the oddballs. We need to get to the oddballs. Yeah, let's get to the oddballs. So the first oddball is that Paul Westerberg is on here, who has nothing yeah. to do with Seattle, nothing <laughs> to do with grunge. Um, and in fact, so you could say, you know, he was in the replacements in the 80s, one of the pioneering indie rock bands, I guess you'd say, of the, they were on Twin Tone and, and uh, released some classic albums from Tim to Please to Meet Me and... All sorts of great songs. And this was after The Replacements All Shook Down, which was their worst album, released in 1990. It was basically a Paul Westerberg solo album. They broke up. And then his first solo album doesn't come out until next year after this, 1993, which is 14 songs. So basically nobody had heard from Paul Westerberg for a couple years. And he shows up with probably two of his best songs ever. Mm -hmm. On this album, uh, Dyslexic Heart and Waiting for Somebody. And uh, they're still, I mean, they're just two of the best Paul Westerberg songs in terms of his lyrics are working as well as his melodies. And he still had that energy that carried into 14 songs with uh, songs like World Class Fad and, and some other ones, but definitely petered out after that. Eventually became what he went for a much more like modern adult rock almost with mm. love untold and it sort of went downhill for a couple of years before he sort of recaptured his, I guess, uh, lo-fi alternative indie rock cred, um, with some indie releases. But I'm curious cause I know, I don't think you're the biggest replacements fan or I don't even know if you've listened to them that much. So I'm curious as to what you thought of his two tracks. No, I, I have, but you're right. I mean, I'm not nearly as familiar with them as you are. Um, I think they're great. I, I think that what's what's interesting with with the hindsight now, looking back on this record and being so familiar with the movie, these are the two songs that I think fit the movie the best. You know, when I think of 
you know, when I picture the movie in my head and I think of a song to go with it, it's one of these two songs. There's just something about, um, you know, the movie isn't as as dark as, you know, say, take the, the Soundgarden stuff and the Alice in Chains stuff. You know, those are really dark sounding songs. Um, the movie's not that dark. You know no, I mean? it's a romantic it's kind of like comedy. A, yeah, it's a romantic comedy and, you know, it's, yeah, does it have some like, you know, melodrama in it or whatever? Yeah, but for the most part, it's fairly lighthearted and fun and, and and goofy at times. And, you know, I think these Paul Westerberg songs do a really good job of sort of, you know, it gives it credibility, gives it, it's edgy, you know, it's, it sounds raw, but at the same point, it's hooky as hell, you know, and it mm-hmm. works really good as a, as a soundtrack to that. So, and I don't know that I would have thought that, you know, when the, when it first came out, because it was so like drenched in the image, you know, if you think of the, the black and white, you know, movie poster and sort of the grungy type and that whole persona, um, being a little bit darker and edgier, but in hindsight, it was like, that movie's not really that dark. <laughs> Actually, these two songs fit it better than, than a lot of the, uh, the others that we would associate with it. It's not a grungy type. It's like, it's, it's like Times New Roman. The singles shop? No, it's like yeah. a typewriter that's all like, like grungy. Mm. It's like the signature grungy font. It's typewriter font that's like, you know, scanned in off a piece of paper. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm the graphic designer here for God's sake. Yeah, I'm questioning you. I'm questioning you. Uh, another oddball on this record is the Smashing Pumpkins inclusion, just because they were from Chicago. And, um, they were not well known in the way that Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden were in the sense that, so 91, they released Gish, which while it was successful, was not a, a barn burner the way that 10 or Bad Motor Finger were. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put on the track Drown, and it wasn't until next year after this, 1992, was re- this released 1993, Siamese Dream, they become one of the biggest bands in the world. So their inclusion is interesting. It's a very different song than a lot of the stuff on here. Um, it's mellow for one thing. There's not a lot of mellow. It has a long, noisy outro. It's a much mm. more indulgent song, which yeah. for the Pumpkins was <laughs> appropriate or normal. They had a lot of those tracks. Um, it's on the, especially on the first three albums. Well, first two albums and then the Pisces Iscariot compilation.
they, you know, that was a band that indulged in seven and eight minute long songs with three minutes or four minutes of soloing and feedback. So, but that was the, I think the, the, the muddy, my bloody Valentine side of it with their influence to this day. I think the drown is probably one of the best Smashing pumpkin songs. Is that also on your list of one of the better songs by a band? I think it's in the better part of their catalog. That's for sure. You know, there's, there's others that I like better, but I certainly don't dislike it. And I think it's in the, you know, like I said, it's in the, the high, high, high third of their catalog, I would say in terms of, uh, the better material. And it, it has, it has the signature sound, you know, I mean, it, it, it definitely sounds like their early stuff. And in general, that's a good thing when it comes to the pumpkins. I tried to get Cameron Crowe on this particular episode, but unfortunately he was busy. I would have liked to have asked him how he discovered the pumpkins because they're really the oddball um, mm. on this on this album. I can I can sort of see how he ended up with all these other bands, but the pumpkins yeah. are like the weird one for me. Yeah, well, you know, the Love Mongers and Jimi Hendrix got called out in our comments as being sort of you know just maybe tacked on or only included because they're from seattle but not really you know of the time but i think in in retrospect listening to it i would agree that the pumpkin song might be the one that's kind of the you know standing out the most and i actually think the um the hard slash love longer song the cover of uh, zeppelin's battle of evermore uh i think it fits actually really well i mean it because that song is such a like eerie, you know, I don't know. They're playing mandolin or I don't know if it's acoustic guitar, but it's kind of a higher pitched it's mandolin. You know, guitar, stringed yeah. instrument. And it sounds like, um, it just sounds like, I don't know, something you would hear like in the dark, misty woods. You know what I mean? And it kind of fits like the Northwest kind of vibe and they do a great job playing that song. And I don't know. I didn't have a problem with it being on here. You? Do you remember the um, there was the Encomium tribute album to uh, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and uh, it it featured like uh, Stone Temple Pilots doing Dancing Days, and oh, wow. uh, Blind, Blind Melon did Out on the Tiles, Helmet with David Yao did Custard Pie. <laughs> What's funny is that this song is not included on there, and I think that this cover of zeppelin is probably better than anything that's on that <laughs> compilation yeah. oh yeah the best you know, of course I don't is hoodie and the blowfish covering hey hey what can i do without a oh, doubt oh god but oh lord <laughs> don't make me ever review that you know i think obviously if they would have done one of their songs it may have you know stood out a little bit in the context of this record some more right but, I don't know. Them doing Zeppelin sort of worked. It also kind of harkened back to, to me, you know, where these bands are referencing, you know, Soundgarden, that Soundgarden song sounds in a lot of ways like it could have come from the 70s. You know, it's it's amped oh, up it's a little very bit, obviously. Black sabbath yeah. yeah, so there's, it just, it ties in with that reference of like, you know, where the where a lot of these bands um, were reaching back to and referencing. And, you know, Zeppelin was... You can hear in that one Pearl Jam song, you know, sort of that riff um, and breathe in a scream. It's kind of it's kind of Zeppelin-y a little bit. So um, having them represented here through uh, the Sisters in Heart, I think was kind of a, a nice little touch. Yeah, I, and it's also for the inclusion of the Jimi Hendrix song. I mean, 
you listen to the playing of Mike McCready and Stone Gossard, specifically McCready, um, you know, there's clear lines going back to Hendrix playing. You know, if you listen to a song like Yellow Leadbetter, that's a clear Jimi Hendrix rip. I mean, that's basically, you know, Little Wing or Castles Made of Sand or, you know, something like that. The influence of, of 60s, late 60s and early 70s rock on grunge combined with the punk ethos is basically what made that sound. So including mm. a cover of Zeppelin and a Jimi Hendrix song only makes sense in that those bands were clearly influenced by uh, the bands referenced here and, and the, and, you know, with some Sabbath thrown in and some, these bands each sort of represent a different delineation of those influences. Mudhoney heading towards the more punk side of it, uh, Pearl Jam heading and, and Soundgarden heading more classic rock sound of it. So. Yeah. And I, I realized at the time it was very much the, the attitude was they were severing from any of that. But I think in hindsight, we've talked, talked about this before, I think in the, um, everyone loves our town episode, you know, in hindsight, you know, they weren't that, they weren't as far as far off as any of us remember. They were, you know, in some ways, like you said, just sort of a different kind of take on, on that. You know, I think this, this, this record in the, in the context of, of a couple of those older songs helped reinforce that for me. So let's uh, end this on a question. Do you think in terms of a compilation of 90s music, do you think that this works better than, say, some albums from the era in terms of sort of an overview of 90 to 93 of what was going on? I would think I I would be hard pressed to come up with a better, I was going to give somebody a time capsule, you know, (laughs) but somebody said, I I need to give me a time capsule of uh, a music for, you know, of rock music from 91 to 93. And it can't be more than 15 songs. I can't think of a better piece of evidence to give them than this. So if that's the criteria, sure. All right. Well, uh, am I alone on that? No, you're not. I mean, I don't. I can't think of a better, this you know, sort of breakdown of all the different influences and styles and sounds that are, are were prevalent at that time. Obviously, it started to expand beyond that. And you know, the notable exclusion is that there's no Nirvana on here, but they sort of get their own <laughs> chapter, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, and but, I think I think Mud Honey touches on kind of where. The- yeah some of the attitude was that in that, but yeah, it's kind of a, and it bundles it all up. It takes all these different, you know, different things and bundles it up and um, puts it under this, the lens of Seattle, which is what we saw everything through for a little period of time there. So in that way, it makes a ton of sense. So worthy album, better EP, decent single. It's a worthy album. I can't really think of, you know, I'm not a huge mud honey fan. That's probably the only song on the record that, I don't love, um, but, you know, I like all this. I'm in agreement. It sucks when we agree, but we agree. So uh, the only thing we can slag on is the encomium tribute to Led Zeppelin. (laughs) If you want to hear Rollins' band playing Four Sticks, go listen to encomium. Otherwise, (laughs) 
You just wiped that wow. from your mind, didn't you? That's that. What is it called? I have to see if this is on Spotify. Encomium. Spell it. E N C O M I U M. Go look that up, kids. That's a real time capsule of bad decision making. So, mm. yeah. Well, we want to thank everybody who participated in our first our first Facebook poll. We're gonna probably throw some more up. I think we'd like to do a another compilation, maybe a tribute album, not encomium, but uh, yeah. something else. I've been and, wanting to uh, do that um that Kiss tribute album. So oh maybe, yeah, maybe we Kiss have to throw regrouped. that one up for a vote. Yeah. That might be a part of a poll coming up soon in a neighborhood near you, specifically the Facebook neighborhood at Dig Me Out Podcast. So if you want to suggest an album or a band or, yeah, specifically an album for us to review, visit the Request to Review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. And, of course, if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Uh, That's it, Jay. We're out. We are done And we're going to wrap this one up and say thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. (laughs) 